morning again, everyone. Good morning. So, it seems like the greatest sin that our culture can imagine is the sin of failure. The, the sin, this cultural sin of being unsuccessful. And I think that's always been a problem. It's always been part of, of human nature to desire and expect and even demand success in our endeavors. But I think it's especially bad right now in the age that we live in. Uh, we kind of live in the age of the highlight reel. And I'm not just talking about like the, the sports center top 10 every morning. Um, that's, you know, in, in high profile, you know, things like that, like professional sports, we expect to see the highlights every day. But that's sort of become the norm for everyday life. I know in the past, I don't know, several, you know, six months or so, I've probably seen at least two or three different studies that were done by like social psychologists about um, relating depression and Facebook um, with people that have really started to look so negatively upon their own lives because of what they see in the lives of, of others around them. As they look at the best of the best, the, the carefully curated and selected pieces of our lives that we're all too willing to share with everyone else. And then we see that, and then we see the full picture of our own lives. There was this line that, that I saw. The reason we struggle with insecurity is because we compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reel. And I think that's a really true statement. They're so, it's so easy to look at the best of the best of everyone else around us and compare that to the full picture, warts and all, of our own lives. We're constantly shown this distorted image of what normal life looks like. And it's anything but normal. And there's really no way that we can live up to such impossible expectations. And so many people end up living with this constant fear, the, the fear of being wrong, the fear of being less than, the, the fear of being just not good enough. Because we know deep down that we have been wrong a lot. We've always been a little bit less than what we feel like we should be. And so we walk around carrying this list in our heads and more often in our hearts. The list of ways we just don't measure up. The list of our failures. The list of our mistakes. The list that's just full of our guilt. And some of us, well, maybe we can't even get to that list because there's that one. That whenever our failure comes to mind, whenever our weakness comes to mind, there's the big one that we just can't let go of, the big failure, the big mistake, the big sin that just weighs heavily and, and looms large in our minds. And whether it's one thing or a hundred, we tend to have this surplus of guilt about every way that we fall short. And it just overflows into everything we do in our lives. You know, it's no wonder that everyone seems so stressed all the time. Just look at what so many of us are carrying around, this weight, this burden. But then, as we're going through and, and we're reading our Bibles, we read about confidence of all things. 
read passages like we just read from, from Hebrews 10, talking about the confidence we have to enter the most holy place, the, the full assurance that faith brings, how we've been cleansed from a guilty conscience. Really? <laughs> you see, that image of confidence before God just simply doesn't seem compatible with the persistent feelings of guilt that we so naturally come by. And I think that's why I'm, I'm pretty sure that's one of the reasons that Satan loves guilt. You see, as long as we feel guilty enough, there's no way that we're going to have that confidence to enter the most holy place. Satan would love to keep us hiding from God in our shame rather than drawing near to God for his grace and forgiveness. Plus, that power of guilt, it can keep us on a wrong path when we just can't admit that maybe we've been wrong. There are many things that become a lot harder to say the longer we wait to say them. We've all had this experience. The thing we know we should have said back then, that every moment that passes, every day that passes, it becomes harder and harder to say. And I think one of the hardest has got to be, I was wrong. It's hard in personal relationships, but, you know, the mistake quickly corrected, the, the quickly repented of sin, you know, those are some definite scrapes and bruises to our dignity and to our pride. But the stakes go up considerably when we look back upon days and, and months and even years and consider that, well, wait a minute, maybe I was wrong. We have enough guilt floating around our heads about so many other things. That might just be too much to bear. And so we have these two things that we have to weigh in our minds. Well, there's, do we care more about the truth of the situation moving forward? Or do we care more about what we want to believe about ourselves? What makes us feel better about ourselves and helps us get through the day? It's really sad to think about how many refuse to acknowledge truth today because it means admitting that they were wrong yesterday and all the baggage that goes along with that. It also scares me a little bit to think about where we might have committed some willful ignorance when we become more attached to a position of doctrine than to the person of Jesus. We become so committed to the way we've been, to what we've believed, what we thought was right, that when confronted with something that challenges that, We'd rather not think about it. We'd rather just not deal with it. Because to say that maybe we were wrong, maybe we've been in error somewhere along the way, there's just too much guilt that might go along with that. So we charge forward. And when we get stuck in this kind of guilt, when we get stuck in this kind of thinking, we're really easy targets for the accuser. You see, human nature leads us to be so hyper-aware of our faults and our shortcomings, while simultaneously trying to hide all those faults and shortcomings from the rest of the world. And so, when we think of confidence, well, we spend more of our time than we should just scrambling, trying to regain the confidence that we feel like we've lost. We might try to hide or ignore our guilt. We work so hard to gain a a false, self-manufactured confidence of pride. But you see, we're not going to just stop falling short. We're not going to stop making mistakes. And we're not going to just stop being wrong anymore. So to keep our guilt list from growing, we naturally turn towards this defensive denial. 
Because see, I feel like I'm supposed to have it all right. I'm, I'm supposed to have it all together. And as soon as I allow a little crack to appear in that facade, well, I'm, I'm opening wide a door for, for shame and regret. And then we find ourselves trapped in, in this cycle of building these fragile structures of self-image, of our own creation, just building these st- fragile structures in the sand only to have them washed away by a high tide of, of unpleasant truth. And then we've left <laughs> trying to rebuild again and we just get stuck in this cycle. And there's got to be a better way to live than that. And there is, but I think it requires us to look at that Hebrews passage again a little bit more closely. It doesn't just talk about our confidence. It talks about where it comes from. Let's read it again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest in the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Because see, we have confidence to enter not because of our own worthiness, not because of what we've convinced ourselves about who we are, but we have confidence by the blood of Jesus. And then following that, we see all of these statements about what has been done for us to make all of this possible. We have a way that's been opened for us. We have a great high priest. We've had our hearts sprinkled. We've had our bodies washed. You see, we have this confidence not because we've freed ourselves from our guilt, as much as we may have tried to, but we have this confidence because our guilt has been taken away from us. And see, knowing what's been done for us, having this confidence, not of pride, but the confidence of faith, it's saturated in thankfulness. You see, if we are in Christ, that list we've been carrying around, that list full of guilt becomes a list full of gratitude. Because we're grateful because we know that we were guilty. I mean, Romans 3.23, when it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We really don't need to be told that. Paul probably didn't need to mention that because we all feel it. We know it's true even before he said it. All are guilty, and that must include me. But you see, we don't bear the consequence of that burden. Because, see, Jesus bore the deadly consequence of our sin for us. The next chapter in Romans 4, verse 25, says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And so he brought life through the reign, not of judgment, not a reign of guilt, but a reign of grace. Romans 5, 21 says, Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness, excuse me, through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And as Jesus did this, he fulfilled all of God's promises to his people. He completed the story of Israel. He overthrew the kingdom of this world, that kingdom of death and darkness and despair. And he established a kingdom of light and life in its place with Jesus himself on his rightful throne. See, that gets to the very heart of the gospel. 
that speaks to our guilt and to our sin. And to see the full picture of that gospel, to see the full implications of what that story of God means, yes, we have to acknowledge our guilt. We have to acknowledge our weakness. We have to see that, yes, in fact, we have fallen short. But we also have to acknowledge and recognize our freedom from that guilt. That that sin has been paid for, that that guilt that we may feel is not ours to bear alone. Yes, we're convicted of our sin and we experience that that guilt that leads to repentance. But we don't remain under the power of that sin, the power of that guilt. We're free from sin's guilt and shame. In Romans 6, starting in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Now, our old self and everything that goes along with that, our sinful nature, the guilt and the shame that goes along with that, those were on the cross with him. Continuing, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. So that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, we are dead to sin and we are set free from its power. You know, we, we need to learn from our mistakes, but we don't need to live in them. We need to be grateful for what we've been forgiven of, but we don't need to dwell in the shame and the guilt of our past. Because see, if we're dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, then we need to act like the living. Can you imagine... The scene in Bethany. Jesus has has heard that Lazarus was sick and he knows that Lazarus has died. And he makes his way there with his disciples. And we we know the scene there pretty well. The interactions with Martha and Mary. But the climax of that scene. Can you imagine if it was just a little bit different? And Jesus goes to the tomb and he yells, Lazarus, come out. And you hear the response. "Uh, No, thanks. I'm good in here. Thanks for the life, though. I appreciate that. But I'm just going to stay here, if, if that's good with you. Can you imagine how bizarre that would be? For Lazarus to be raised from the dead and then decide, I'm just going to stay in the tomb. I'm just going to stay here, you know. There's, I'm not going to really experience life. I mean, I've, I've got life, you know. You've raised me from the dead, that power. That's really great. Thanks, Jesus. But I'm just going to... Stay here in these grave clothes. I'm just going to stay here on this slab. That's crazy. And as crazy as that sounds, is it any stranger than being forgiven, but still hanging on to our guilt? Is it any stranger than receiving life, but living like the dead? It doesn't make any sense. You see, we live or die 
according to our response to the truth of Jesus. We know this to be true. It's stated very simply many places, like in 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's pretty clear If we have the Son, if we accept the truth about who Jesus is and His Sonship, His Redeemership, His Messiahship, we have life. And if we don't accept it, we don't. But you see, our guilt lives and dies according to what we believe about that truth. According to how all-encompassing we believe that truth to be. You see, if you are in Christ, like that passage before said, your, your guilt died with Jesus on the cross. Your sin was nailed to that cross along with Jesus. Your guilt died that day. God loved you enough to put your guilt to death so that you could have life with him. So we have a choice to make. Do we hang on to our guilt? Do we think that we just deserve it and believe that the forgiveness, the full forgiveness of God, well, that's just a little much. That's a little too unbelievable. And as much as it might be incomprehensible, it's clear that that's the message he wants us to understand, that we do have forgiveness. So do we hang on to our guilt, or do we believe what Jesus' death on the cross says about our guilt? See, we've got to let our guilt stay dead. We've got to move forward in grace. I love that Jesus had this habit of telling people, go and sin no more. It would have been very different if instead he had said, go and obsess over your past. (laughs) I don't see that in the Gospels anywhere. Where Jesus forgives and he says, now you go think about what you've done. It's the kind of thing we would probably say. But no, Jesus wants us to think about not what we've done, But he wants us to think about what we're going to do now that we've been given his life. There's a whole new world of opportunities and possibilities that come with life. Why would we dwell on sin and death from which we've been forgiven, from which we've been set free, where we are slaves no longer? He wants us to move forward. And I think there's no greater example of the difference that it makes when we look at the lives of Judas and Peter. See, in Matthew 26, we have a betrayal, both of them, a betrayal being set up or predicted. We have Judas going to the high priest and and arranging this betrayal of Jesus. But then in that same chapter, we have Jesus telling Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to say that you don't even know me before all this is over. Judas, we think, at least kind of knew what he was doing in betraying Jesus. Peter couldn't believe that he would do anything like that kind of betrayal and denial. But then in the next chapter, in Matthew 27, we see the culmination and then the results of these betrayals. We see Jesus on trial before both the religious and the political authorities of the day. And we see Peter 
being confronted saying, weren't you one of his? Surely you must be one of his disciples. I mean, you're, you're a Galilean. We can tell. You're, you're one of his, aren't you? And he says, no. I don't know that man. Judas, seeing the result of his actions, he's racked with guilt. And he takes his own life. Now, Peter, we look at Peter and his story a lot more often. But sometimes we forget that his betrayal was just as real as Judas's. But then in John, that scene that I love so much in John 21, where Peter, probably feeling the weight of that guilt, the shame of his denial of Jesus, he comes face to face with his risen Lord. And Jesus asks him this question three times. Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord. And so Jesus says, well, then why'd you deny me? No, he doesn't say that. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And instead of asking him about what he had done before, he says, here's what I need you to do now. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. He gives him direction for moving forward, not a prescription for lingering on the shame of that denial. I don't think Jesus wanted Peter walking around with that list of failures and mistakes. And certainly that denial during Jesus' trial wasn't the only mistake that Peter had ever made. Yet he still says, I want you to do something for me. You have a job in my kingdom, Peter. He didn't want Peter walking around with that list full of guilt. You see, there was another far more important list that I'm sure Jesus had in mind. A list of sons and daughters who've laid down their broken, sinful lives, who've laid down their shame and their guilt at the foot of the cross. I'm sure Jesus was far more concerned with a list of names written in the book of life. They're his sons and his daughters because they live through the life found in the Son of God. I hope you're more concerned with that list as well. I hope that your list of guilt and shame can be converted. As your life is converted into the life of the Son, that your list of guilt is converted to that list of gratitude and thankfulness for what He's done for you, ready to move forward in His grace. I hope that you can be counted among His sons and daughters whose name is written in the book of life And if it's not, I hope that you're willing to do something about that today. We can help you do something about that today. But if you do belong to him, if your name is written in the book of life, but you know that somewhere along the way, you've tried to raise your guilt from the dead. You've been carrying around this burden. You've been carrying around this guilt, not really fully able to accept anymore that surely, God, you're not still able to forgive me. You're not still willing to overlook my sin. I want you to know that just as Paul wrote 
in Romans, that your sin was nailed to the cross with Christ so that you can put it to death and you are no longer under its power. That promise is as true for you today as it was the day you accepted him as your Lord in baptism, as as true as it was the day that those words were first penned, as true as it was the day that our Lord was risen from the dead. If there's anything that we can do to help you more fully embrace that truth, either for the first time or for the hundredth, if there's anything that we can do as a church family to help you grow closer to God this morning, I pray that you would come and let us know as we stand and as we sing.